Um, the number of three in the Bible is God's number for divine completion and perfection. Uh, it is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are three in one. Uh, when God created man, he created him with body, soul, and spirit. Uh, God created the body and then breathed into him the breath of life. And it said as the spirit came into the body, he became a living soul. And so the soul is the expression of the spirit through the human body. Uh, it is no surprise that when Satan attacked with a temptation in the garden that Eve responded with a threefold response. Within the soul of Eve and Adam is the mind, the intellect, the will, and the emotions. All three of those were in play in the temptation. She saw that it was food that was good to eat. She saw it was pleasant to look at. And then she saw it was something to make her wiser than she was. And so when this attack came from Satan and this expression of the threefold reaction, if you will, of Eve, when Jesus was tempted, we have a threefold temptation against the Son of God in three very specific areas. Now, these three temptations that Satan brought to Jesus Christ are not common to man. They're, they're not. The natural man who doesn't know God, doesn't know Christ, he is not tempted in these three ways. Well, then, why the temptation in a different line of thought? And why do we even know these temptations? These temptations are how the enemy of the Christian approaches us. Because the Son of God is being formed in us. The temptations were, were targeted toward Jesus Christ. Well, now Christ lives in you. And therefore, because he lives in you, this is the, these, these are the three lines of communication, of temptation, of testing, if you will, from Satan to the Christian, not to the lost man. I think over the next several weeks, we are going to learn incredible things about these three lines of, in fact, I can't, I can't resist saying this. These are the three big things you need to know. Or the three big lies you need to know. Because you can mark this out. Once you learn the entrance of Satan and how he would, was tempting the Son of God and how he tests and tempts Christians, you will see these three areas in the church today expressed in Gospels that are not the true Gospel, but being preached in churches, accepted carte blanche by all as a significant or at least a considerable Christianity when they are not. 
We're going to see three different areas that believers have fallen to in our church age. And I'd be very careful that we are on the right path resisting the temptation of the enemy to the Son of God who lives within us. Now, we need to examine a few words, in fact, one specific word as we move into this. And it's the word temptation. The word temptation in the Greek is the word parazo, and it means, yes, it can mean a solicitation to do evil, but normally it's not. It means to try whether a thing can be done, to attempt, to endeavor, to try to make trial of, to test, for the purpose of ascertaining his quality, what he thinks, and how he will behave himself. The classic example is Abraham. It's said in Genesis that there was a time that God came to tempt Abraham. Now, God will not solicit to evil. He will not do that. The idea is not temptation as we think of it, but as a trial and a testing thing. Chapter 4 of the book of Matthew, it says that then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. The next thing I want you to understand is what the wilderness was. The wilderness in the Old Testament was referred to by the Jews as the Heshemah, which means the devastation. It was a region that began along the western plateau. Israel was, was formed as if there were a backbone that spread throughout the middle of the land. And on that backbone was Jerusalem. Well, down on that eastern side of the backbone, along next to Jerusalem was what they refer to as the wilderness. It was 35 miles long, 15 miles wide. Uh, Sir George Adam Smith, who traveled it, describes it in this way. It is an area of yellow sand, of crumbling limestone, and of shingle, scattered shingle. It is an area of contorted strata where the ridges run in all directions as if they were warped and twisted. The hills are like dust heaps. The limestone is blistered and peeling. Rocks are bare and jagged. Often the very ground sounds hollow when a foot or a horse hoof falls upon it. It glows and shimmers with the heat like some vast furnace. It runs right out of the Dead Sea, and then it comes down to drop 1,200 feet. A drop of limestone, flint, merle, through crags and quarries and precipices down into the Red Sea itself. It was a devastating area. And here Jesus leaves the baptism and wanders out into this, this wilderness, if you will. Look with me, if you will, chapter 4, the book of Matthew. It says in verse 2 that after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. I bet he was. 
Now, in the essential nature, he was as us, as man. But you need to understand how, uh, how he could have gone 40 days and 40 nights without food. Well, here you have a man who is a perfect man, a sinless man, yet still a man. He could go that far without eating. But at the end of it, like us, he needed sustenance. He needed food. Now, I want to show you something very encouraging, and I want you to put your finger there in Matthew, and I want you to go to Hebrews chapter 4. So skim over, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 4, and I want to show you a particular passage of great encouragement to us. Chapter 4 and verse 15. Hebrews chapter 4, all the way down, oh, let's begin at verse 14 to give us a better context. Chapter 4, verse 14 of Hebrews says this, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Notice, it goes on to say, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our, the old King James says, infirmities, our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tested as we are, yet without falling to sin. Now, there is a difference between a weakness and a sin, an infirmity and a sin. You might say, I have a bad temper. That's my weakness. That's not your weakness. That's your sin. A weakness is a weakened strength within you, like hunger. It is not sinful to be hungry. But doesn't hunger sometimes lead to sin? Oh yeah. You get hungry and the bad thing, something crosses you and you're more, you know, liable to to, to do the little claw thing on somebody. You have a weakness. How How about being tired, a lack of rest? You ought to be tired at the end of your work day. You've expended strength, energy. You ought to be wore out. You ever been super tired and someone said something they shouldn't have said to you? Yeah. You see how that works. These these are not sinful. They're infirmities. He knew what it was like to be hungry like us. And yet he never allowed the infirmity, the weakness, to cause him to sin. He was in a weakened condition. Isn't that good to know that Jesus knows how it feels to be exhausted, to be hungry, to have infirmity in the human body. All right, go back to Matthew, if you will. Verse 3. This is the first lie that we're going to examine, and we'll only examine one today. And the tempter came, the tester came, and said, notice he doesn't disguise himself like he did with Eve. In Eve, he came as a serpent. But no use doing that with the Son of God. He sees right through the whole thing. He just shows up as himself. And he says to Jesus, if, really sense could be a better rendering there. Since you, there was no question he was the Son of God. Since you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves. 
of bread. How many bread fans out there? Man, I wish it wasn't true. We were at Carabas last night, and they bring that warm bread, and they pour that oil into those things, and by the time the pasta gets here, you don't even want it. Bread will get you, though. Bread will get you. It'll really get you when you haven't eaten for 40 days and 40 nights because what Jesus would turn into bread would be hot. You know, I was a cook in the Navy, and one of the ways that I got out, stayed out of trouble with the, the rough guys that worked down below, they were boiler techs, BTs. And there was always an initiation, and I won't describe the initiation, that these fellows would give you a new sailor on the ship. They would pull you down into that boiler tech room and do certain things that are not to be described here. So I was determined in my mind that was not going to happen to me. So as a cook, every night, a hot loaf of bread and a pound of butter went down in the hole. I fed those guys, and it was a payoff to stay away from me. And it worked. Here Jesus is hungry, and here's all these stones. What was he saying to Jesus? Watch this very carefully. He was saying, you have spiritual power. Use that spiritual power to satisfy your physical need. He was saying to Jesus, you want a kingdom? You want to draw men? Use your spiritual power to meet their physical need, no pun intended, but they'll be eating out of your hand. Now, is this true? Absolutely it's true. When Jesus fed the multitude, remember what they wanted him to do? They wanted to make him a king. Why? Because they believed in him? No, because their stomach was full. What fool wouldn't come, and all of us would come to someone who's feeding us. By the way, that's the way you parents should get rid of your teenagers. Amen. Stop feeding them. I said, well, where does the food come from? Well, it comes from a job. Anyway, didn't plan on going down that rabbit trail, but there it is. This kingdom, before I tell you about this kingdom that he wants to set up, that we see all over the church today, that we see all over the place I want to show you the context of his answer. Because every time Jesus is going to do the same thing, he's going to give them a verse out of the Old Testament. And they're all going to be out of the same chapter or two in Deuteronomy. It's fascinating what he quotes from. Notice, look down at verse 4. But he answered, it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. But by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Wow. Go back with me to Deuteronomy chapter 8. This is the context of every one of these verse references that Jesus gives in answer to the temptation of Christ. And I want you to see what's going on with you and I. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy is a book of preaching. It's actually the preaching of Moses. Deuteronomy chapter 8. And let's see the context of the verses that he's going 
to quote. Anytime you see a verse in the New Testament taken out of the Old Testament, always take the time and effort to look in your study Bible. It's right there. It gives you the reference back. And go read the whole thing. Go read what's not quoted. Go read what's quoted before and after the verse. Get a context in your mind. We're going to do a Bible study. Um, oh, it's in the month of July slash ice cream social. And I'm going to be teaching that night how to take the Bible and make it say anything you want it to say. I'm going to teach you how to do that. Yep. I'm going to t- Anyway, that's another side note. Look at chapter 8 of Deuteronomy. The whole commandment that I command you today, verse 1, you should be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord, that the Lord God swore to, to give to your fathers. The context of the chapter is the possession of the land. They've been wandering 40 years in the wilderness. I want you to go in and I want you to take that land of milk and honey. Now we know from our study in Joshua that this is a reference to the victorious Christian life. The Red Sea is when a person gets saved. As they wander through that time of law, they begin to hunger for milk and honey. And the entering into Canaan is not a trip to heaven, as the singers would tell us. It's an entrance into the victorious Christian life. Herein is the context of the verses that Jesus is battling for. We'll see in a minute how significant that is. But go on in verse verse 3. And he humbled you out in the wilderness and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know. (laughs) What does that mean? Well, it means a couple different things. Number one, they were hungry and they didn't know where to get food. And all of a sudden, these little sweet bread flakes fell from nowhere. They didn't know where they came from. And when they went out to pick them up, You know what they said? They all said the same thing. You know what they said out there? They said manna. Because manna in the Hebrew means, what is it? By the way, you should never say that when you sit down at a meal that your wife cooked. What is it? They picked the manna up, and they didn't know what it was. They didn't know where it came from. They didn't know where it, but it fed them for 40 years which is a picture of Christ in our lives. He's the manna. We don't know where he came from. We don't know how he does it, but he satisfies our souls, does he not? As we look to him, we eat bread. We don't even know where it came from. We don't know what it is. We don't know how he pulls it off, but he's food to us, is he not? So as they fed the manna, go down in verse 4. Oh, I I missed the reference in verse 3. He humbled you and let you hunger and feed, fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know what it was, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. He fed you with the invisible bread of Christ because he wants you to know the significance of life is not the tangible things you can touch. It's the spiritual bread you haven't got a clue how it comes to your soul. But the man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Food to our souls from his very word. This word I hold, this word he speaks through this word. That's the reference. 
All right, go back to Matthew now, and let's pull this together. Matthew chapter 4. He says, Man, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Are you ready for lie number one? Satan offers Jesus a kingdom, but it is not a kingdom that goes through a cross. It is not a kingdom that goes through suffering, through the redemption of mankind. It is a, it is a kingdom, and it is a selfish kingdom. He offers him a selfish kingdom. A kingdom that is offered in order to supply the physical needs of prosperity, of health, of money. That, that, that Jesus would be a Santa Claus, a genie in a bottle for those who would follow him. Because if he promises and he does meet all the physical needs and we all have a mansion on the hill, then we will follow him. But if he strips us of everything we've got, and he takes away everything, do we follow him? There are two different outlets in our church today, churches today, and denominations today, and Christendom, if you want to call it that, that have bought into this lie that Christianity is meant to make you rich. It's, it's meant to heal every deal you got, plenty of money. One is called a prosperity gospel. A definition of the prosperity gospel as found in the Lejeune Theological Working Group, which is a good group, they define it like this. We define prosperity gospel as the teaching that believers have a right to the blessings of health and wealth and that they can obtain these blessings through positive confessions of faith. (laughs) Some call it name it and claim it. Some call it blab it and grab it. And the sowing of seeds, does that sound familiar? Gloria Copeland has said this, give God, well, give God, what she really, give us. Give us $100 and we'll turn it into 1000 God will turn it into 1000 You give $1,000 to this ministry, God will give you 100000 And then she was so bold as to say that you have obligated God to bless you materially if you do this. He doesn't have a choice. Through the faithful payments of tithes and offerings. Is that incredible or not? Now, let's not recline this simply to these groups that we know. You know who I'm talking about. Because... Fundamental churches do much of the same things. You're faithful in your tithes and offerings. You heard the old joke, Aunt Bess is down the hospital having her tithes taken out. 
That God will bless you for your faithfulness to church. That God will bless you for your faithfulness in tithes. Now, I really do believe he does bless us for giving. But that's not why we give. That's not why we serve. He's not a genie in the bottle to any of us. Because the gospel is not about us. It's not about our needs being met by a benevolent God who would never leave us suffering, really. Well, you need to check the histories of the 12 disciples, the 12 original apostles. Every one of them got martyred except John. Had their heads cut off, burned in the fire, cut in half, stuffed in logs, chased down, harassed. They had nothing of this world. How many of y'all remember the old uh, Twilight Zone? Remember the Twilight Zone? You, you remember when they, they, they had this actor on there that was a cowboy actor in the modern movies, and he was smug, and he was arrogant, and he was, you know, just a pretty boy. And the Twilight Zone, Rod Sterling, I don't know how he did it, but he, he, took, he took him and he transported him back to the Old West, to a real saloon, and real cowboys. And they surrounded him and said, you got it all wrong in the movies. How many remember that show? Okay, a couple, I'm not crazy. And they told him how it really was. I would love to take a couple of these fellas, and I won't say their names, you know who I'm talking about, and transport them back to the first century. And surround them by Paul, the tent maker. And James and John and Peter. Wow. Do you see the lie of the selfish kingdom? The second area, notice that's the first. The emphasis is always in this prosperity gospel. It is always on the needs of man rather than on the person of Christ. You hear a sermon. Do you hear about our great needs and how God is going to fill those needs? That's what people, people love that stuff. Eat it up, eat it up, eat it up. Tell me how my sore back is going to get healed. Tell me how I'm going to, my bank account's going to swell and I'll just come in the, the droves to hear you. But the gospel is not about the needs of man. It's about the glory of Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ, the food and manna for our souls. We ran into uh, Caleb's sister-in-law yesterday, Bridget. And I talked to her and Jacob, and I said, you guys find a church? And they said, you know, we did. We go to Journey Church right over here in Orange Park. I said, well, good. How is it going over? She's, and this is what Bridget told me. She said, we love it. She said, because it's not only a good church with good people, but they preach about hell and heaven and redemption and the cross and sin. She said, I'm tired of hearing all that fluff. That's good stuff. Good for journey. That's what we need, isn't it? We don't need fluff of how we're going to improve our lives. We need to hear the truth about Christ and that in our flesh dwells no good thing and he's our only hope and he's our life and he's our strength and by the work of the cross we are completely forgiven. The condemnation is gone. That we walk as a perfect, perfect, what do we walk as? A perfect 10. Been a while since we did that, hasn't it? On a scale of 1 to 10, church, what are you? You are a 10. 
You were a 10 the moment you got saved. Perfect in Jesus Christ. But just give that offering a little bit and you'll just get a little extra from him. Pray a little more and you'll close the gap between you and God. There is no gap between you and God that you have to close. I pray because there is no gap. I give and serve and love him because I, my oneness with him and I know that's secure in Christ. See the difference? This is the second thing. This expression of selfishness in the gospel comes through. The keynote on the other side is always constant struggle. Always constant struggle. You never quite attain to any kind of victory. You just keep working at it. I find that the Bible says that we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Through him that loved us, not through me who prayed. I don't fight for victory. I fight from victory. I'm already victorious in Jesus Christ. If you're struggling as a Christian, you're not understanding what's going on. You're trusting in yourself. There is no struggle in Christianity. C.S. Lewis in one of his many books, a book called Mere Christianity, in a ch- one of my favorite chapters, asks, answers the question, is Christianity easy or hard? His answer, yes. It is at one point the hardest thing to give up your own self-effort. It is the hardest thing to stop trying to be a good Christian. But once you do, and he uses as his basis two different teachings of Jesus Christ that seem diametrically opposed. Number one, Jesus said, if you, any man come after me, let him deny himself, take up, take up his cross, go to his own death. Incredibly hard. But on the other hand, Jesus says this, if any man is weary and tired, let him come to me. He'll find that my yoke is easy. Lewis writes it like this. The Christian way is harder and easier. Christ says, give me all. I do not want so much of your time or so much of your money or so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural life. I've come to kill it. No half measures will do any good. He says, I don't want to cut off a branch here and there. I want the whole tree down. I don't want to drill the tooth. I don't want to crown it. I don't want to plug it. I want to have it out. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think are innocent as well as the ones you think are not. But once he has all that, once you have given up and surrendered, Christian life is easy. But there are denominations who thrive and grow on the basis of keeping their disciples, keeping those who come to those churches in a constant sense of struggle. And guess who has the key to release the struggle? Me. If you just keep coming one more Sunday, I'll tell you next Sunday how you can be free from sin. 
You follow my guidance and my teaching. You give your offerings. You invite others. And we grow as a church. And I'll keep you at a state of constant bondage. Because, because, well, we're just not in heaven yet and we can't have full victory. That is a lie from Satan himself. These things that we think are so quasi, man, that's not good. You know, you're telling people the prosperity thing. Ah, you know, it's probably a form of Christianity. It's from hell itself. It's from Satan himself. It's the lie of a selfish kingdom where I am the center of all things. In this idea of keeping us in a state of bondage and struggle when Christ has already purchased our full victory in Christ is from Satan also. It is a self-centered, man-centered approach to the gospel. And it is, and it is a lie from hell itself. So that's one of the three big things you need to know. Number one, he offered Christ a selfish kingdom. And Christ said, if I meet their natural physical needs, if I do all that, they will not live by that. They must have me. And the only way they can have me is through an avenue of the cross and the suffering. 